Well, do you love the live or do you hate the live? You see, that's the problem. You never know what you're going to get. You get no intro, checking to see if you're still here and you're on your toes. Shabbat Shalom and greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. We are here. We are blessed. Technical difficulties surmounted. We overcome. Will you overcome? Because if we can't run with the footman, then what will we do when the horsemen come? These are small, minor things, and these are the things that help us to develop our character. So I'm blessed that you stuck with me. I'm sticking with you, and it is Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. We are in Parsha Va'ira today, and that is Shemot, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, and it extends through chapter 9, verse 35. Greet one another in the chat, won't you? And if you um, feel like it, you can put some comments down in the comments section underneath if you're watching this later. And please, give us some thumbs up. It really does help because it brings in the lost sheep of the 12 tribes scattered abroad. You can't believe how many people over the years. And I say, well, how did you come to find Torah to the tribes? And well, they have a good viewing history, and then all of a sudden, up we pop on their suggested screen, and the next thing, their life is changed and transformed. So that happens by you helping out, giving us a thumbs up. So thank you, and let's dig in. Now, I love this Torah portion as we progress through now in the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. So turn in your scriptures to Shemot, Exodus chapter 6. Now, of course, we're getting into the theme, the thematic part of scripture here of the plagues, the infamous plagues that are, of course, inflicted upon the Egyptians. And this is all because Pharaoh refuses to let the children of Israel go. Whatever is in his heart is strengthened. And we'll get into that because that is really the case of man. The case of man. Whatever is in my heart, it is going to be strengthened. So really we have to do a self-inventory. And for the last generation scattered in the nations, you and I should have a hope and an ever-present expectation that Yahweh is going to deliver us too. Because if you don't, then what are you doing here? I want Yahweh to deliver us all from ourselves, from sin, and from this world. It's a natural process and a supernatural process, and they come together in perfect Ruach HaKodesh unity. He's going to deliver us from this world, and he is going to lead us into the land. Of course, we know that that is the millennium, and we start to practice that today by keeping the Sabbaths, by keeping the feasts. These are all holy rehearsals for, as Paul says, good things to come. But this is not only a physical quest. This is a spiritual quest. But we must first do the natural because we must engage naturally. We have to leave this world. We must engage naturally. And we do that by keeping the Sabbaths and keeping the feasts 
and aligning ourselves naturally in this natural world with Yahweh's scriptures. Too many get sidetracked in learning and it becomes just mental assent. They mental assent the Sabbath, mental assent the feasts. That's not keeping the Sabbath. That's not keeping the feasts. It has to be practical. We have to practice it in our homes. If you're not practicing the Sabbath in your home, and you're not practicing the feasts in your home, then you're not keeping the Sabbath and the feasts. It's just some kind of mental idea that you've aligned yourself with. And that is a rip-off to you and to your families. Because we need to see the change in our children. We need to see a generation that is excited about Sabbath that is approaching. And then when it has approached, that is the time the family comes together. And we must do biblical things, biblical ways, all the time in the house. Otherwise, I fear it's just mental assent. And I see too much learning and not enough practical application. Oh, I believe in the Sabbath. Oh, I believe in the feasts. But it's here. And it's not... My children, they look forward to the Sabbath. They know when it comes. They know when it departs. And it's something that is different. And that day is distinctly different from all other days. And we have a biblical culture at home. Because it has to be lived out. And if you, you'll start to see it in your children, especially when they get to the age that my children are at. They're either excited about it or mm, not. Just kind of go along with it. They've got to be excited about it. We must engage with our children. We cannot have mental assent to Yahoo's feasts and festivals because then we're no different than Israel enslaved in Egypt. It was only when they started to practically change in their homes that life changed. Passover, a feast of the home. Sabbath is a Sabbath of the home first. So please, hear me on that, because I see too many people that are entangled up in the world, and they've got the mental ascent, but they haven't got the practical family lifestyle. It's got to be something that your children look forward to and talk about. The scripture, the Bible every day, it's got to be a part of your family life. And if you're by yourself out there, then you need to intimately come in fellowship with Yahusha and implement it with him daily, every day. So all that to say this, we must engage spiritually. We must leave our mental and emotional entanglements and worldly viewpoints behind. We've got to ascend out of the chaos. And prayer brings us into his presence. And that's a mountain presence. So here, the Torah is going to be building and building and building to eventually, you know, quite some time later, Joshua will bring Israel home, Yehoshua, and the prophecies build up. And even the King Jimmy translates in Acts chapter 7, verse 44, 45, that Yeshua is the new Joshua. And this is one of those places where they, they translated Joshua 
and Jesus, and there was this confusion in the King Jimmy many, many, many years ago. And you can look at that, how that appears in your King James Bible in Acts chapter 7, verse 45. But going back to our Parsha, we're going to see so many similitudes with today because we'll have to endure plagues in these last days. We'll have to endure cosmic disturbances. And ultimately, you and I get to triumph how? Because we became into relationship with the blood of the Lamb. It wasn't mental ascent. It is practical and it is a supernatural change. And that is what makes us be able to partake of the blood of the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Now the keys to our final exodus are, and I put this up in the, the um, description for you, is Passover. Firstly, how do we approach the master's table? How do we approach in a pagan way of syncretism, or do we approach the master's table from the way we're told to right here in the book of Shemot? Secondly, what about Yahweh's altar? And here we're going to see Moshe and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and we are going to see representations from the altar coming out before Pharaoh. So how should we approach that? And then also, we need to realize, and this is hard, Especially when we look out on the world today and we see so much suffering and many people that you love and care about, but they, they haven't awakened to the awakening that you and I have. And it's kind of bittersweet. I'm so thankful that I'm awakened to the things that I was once slumbering in. But then it saddens me greatly to see so many that I care about that are slumbering and have no desire to awaken. We need to know, of course, that some were created for destruction and some for glory. And we can have all of our prayers about Pharaoh, but Paul tells the Romans that Pharaoh was created for a specific purpose, was he not? For destruction. And that's a bitter pill to swallow. That is a bitter pill to swallow. It all depends on whether you are being abated and transformed in the heart or if you're being left to your own desires and they will be strengthened and you will become buttressed in heart. Because at the end of the day, Yahuwah is trying to touch the heart of man to change it. And that is the beginning of your redemption. Now finally... We all need to be encouraged from the witness of Aaron and Moshe because you and I need to have intercessors. We need to have counselors. We need to have guides. We need to have mentors. We need to have mediators that will help and aid us, even speak and assist you in your life if you come into difficult, trying situations. Moshe was slow in tongue, but Yahweh prepared a voice for him. So you can always be assured that when you're with Yahuwah, that he will give you the tools and the skills or the people to help you to get where you need to go, whatever it is that you have to stand before. Will you still have to stand before what you have to? Yes. But he will give you the tools to be able to do it. There is so much to see in the scripture today. 
And Elohim spoke to Moshe. This is a mild rebuke in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word here is dibre. He spoke to Moshe and said to him, I am Yahuwah, and I appear to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahuwah, was I not known to them? And I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, where they were strangers. Now look at your translation, and you're going to see different translations specifically with verse 3. Is it a question? Is it a statement? I think it's a question. Um, but anyway, regarding verse 3, what the Henry does that mean? Because I thought that Abraham knew Yahweh, didn't you? I mean, you see the yod hey wah hey all the way back from Bereshit, Genesis. But here he says, by my name Yahweh was I not known to them. So I do think it's a question, not a statement, because we know that Abraham knew Yahuwah. The patriarchs did know Yahuwah's name. It wasn't a mystery, but here something different is happening. Yahuwah is going to manifest himself fully to Moshe. What do I mean? You see, to the patriarchs, El Shaddai performed miracles that didn't disrupt nature. But here, you're going to see that Yahweh is going to manifest himself fully, fully to Moshe, and he is going to disrupt the natural world. He is going to disrupt nature in a way that mankind has never, ever seen before. With the patriarchs, he nurtured and comforted them. And he brought them from generation and generation. El Shaddai, he was the nurturer and comforter of the generations. That once Abraham crossed over from the era of Chaldees, he came onto better soil. He became an Ivri. He was one that crossed over, a Hebrew, an Ivri, one who crossed over from bad soil to good soil to produce a generational blessing if he stayed in the El Shaddai. The Elohim's shad, breast, die is sufficient. And he stayed in the bosom of the Father, and therefore he had all the comfort to his generations. But now there's going to be something that is going to be manifest so greater. It's going to extend past the limited generations, and now it's going to be national in scope. It's not just going to be a generational blessing restricted to a line. It's going to be national in scope, and it's going to change the order of the world, even to the heathen. Do you and I expect such a change as that? Well, the book of Revelation says that the world will see the changes too. It's not going to be just restricted to believers. It's going to be manifest on a worldwide scale. So verse 3, I believe it should be viewed as a question. But by my name, Yahuwah, was I not known to them? But they never did question him. But here you are, Moshe, questioning me. They saw all my attributes, but they never questioned. But you, you're questioning. You see, this is interesting because Yahusha makes the same equitable inquiry to his followers right before the Passover. 
right before the Passover, Yahushua made the same equitable inquiry to his followers as Yahuwah does to Moshe here in verse 3. It's bookend linguistics. John 14, verse 8. Philip saith unto him, Master, show us the Father, and it sufficeth. And Yahushua said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou, Show us the Father? A question. An equitable question. And then in John chapter 20, verse 29, Yahushua saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and I. That's you and I. So now we look at verse 5 in chapter 6 of our text, and we hear now, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. You'll never come to the Passover unless you groan. You'll never come to faith unless you groan. There has to be a point in your life when you're just like, oh, what did I do to myself? What did I do to myself? And you groan. How did all my decisions led me to this? But so now I should just pick up a Bible and stand on the side of the corner and, and preach the gospel. How can I do that? I'm such a hypocrite. I'm such a wicked man. There is no hope for me. I can't pretend to be righteous. There is nothing good, no good. Oh, my, I'm lost. I could go and maybe I should join a monastery. Maybe I should go to India and, 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 and go on a pilgrimage. And I thought about, and it would all end up still with me and the decisions I'm and the man that I really am in my own natural, natural realm. Evil. Evil. But when you understand the Passover and the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that's the only message that made sense to me, that someone could live a perfect sinless life and be at one, an, an atoning covering and that if I walked in faith and applied that to my life, then I could be transformed and become a new creation. And the old man is reckoned dead. That's the only message in all the religions of the world, in all the mysticism of the world, that is true. Because it is the person of truth, Yahushua, the way, the truth, and the life. And that is it. And this is where we now come to the seven I wills of Yahuwah. And of course, within the seven Yahuwah will, um, the seven I wills of Yahuwah, you get the four cups of the Passover. You don't get any cup of common union here, the communion. Well, you kind of do because it's actually the third cup of the Passover. But we have to be careful because syncretism 
of the nations has snuck in and it has diluted the cup down and it is, you end up with a cup this big and the crumbs from the master's table. Why would you be happy with enough? I mean, there's more kiddish, more wine spilt at a Passover Seder than what you would get in a little common union cup. There is more bread, crumbs, on my Sabbath table when my children are tearing into the challah bread than you would get on... Why would, why would you be happy with the crumbs and the dregs when you have a bounty? That's what syncretism does. It says, you know what? Take the crumbs, take the breads, and you'll be happy. And you see it in this world today, not to get political, but you know I love to. You see it in this world today with all this stimulus money, with all this absolutely trillions and trillions. You do the math on it, and you take all the people in the United States of America, and if you, you're literally getting cents on the dollar. And where's the rest of it going? And people are happy. They will own nothing and be happy because they have been trained up not only by religion but by men to be happy to be dogs and just to have crumbs and dregs. But we are kings and priests after the order of Malkitzedek. We've been transformed and our expectations should be more than what this world and Egypt has to offer. But if you're happy with Egypt, you'll stay in Egypt. But Egypt is about to go under. Here, and of course, we see mystery Babylon being a metaphor for Egypt in Revelation. It's clearly, clearly going under. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am Yahuwah, and I will bring you out. Here is the first cup of the Passover the cup of sanctification. And this is the life of the believer. The first thing that happens is you have to have a realization that you need to, be, you need to come out of the lifestyle that you were living. You need to come out of that filthy lifestyle that you were living. It could have just been a mental filthy lifestyle. It could have been physical, but there is none righteous. No, not one. That's the first step. It is sanctification. I'm coming out of the world. I am going to come out of the world from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And he says, I will deliver you. The second cup of the Passover, we get deliverance. We get deliverance from the world. We get deliverance from our generational iniquity. We get delivered from the pagan traditions and syncretism. It is full fold. It is a rewiring of your brain. It is a rewiring of your body chemistry. It is true deliverance, not only physical, it is spiritual and it is ongoing. Because sanctification, brethren, it's an instant thing, but it is also ongoing. Ongoing, right? When I first got saved, oh, I was burning books. I was burning all kinds of stuff. Now, those were the things that were so obvious. Now I'm burning those things that are hidden in my heart. Those things that are hidden within my psyche. Those, th those behaviors that are hidden, right? But they're just as bad. 
sanctification never stops. Sanctification never stops and deliverance never stops. It's an onward thing with Yahuwah. And now we, he says, I, I'm going to deliver you out of your bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Anthropomorphic Yahuwah, outstretched arm, a metaphor for Yahusha. This is Yahusha's cup. This is the cup that Yahusha drank at the Passover with his disciples. It is the third cup of the Passover, the only cup in the whole world that can redeem you. And there was only one that had the rights to drink of it. Father, let it not be my will, but your will. But if it can be, please take this cup. No, you've got to drink it. My son, you have to drink the cup of redemption. Because by you drinking the cup of redemption, you will be able to redeem man from his iniquity. That message, that struck me and made so much sense. Because I finally get delivered from myself. I finally can start to get my mind, my body chemistry, my behaviors, my culture all sanctified out of me. I mean, I, I left a country and moved thousands of miles to try and get sanctification myself. It didn't work. I drug everything from my home country and brought it over here and I started practicing the same things because I was still the same man. And you can get people and they go, oh, I'm going to move here, I'm going to move there. If you don't, if you don't have true sanctification, it'll just drag all the way with you throughout your generations. And then he says, I will take you to me for a people. This is the cup that Yahushua said, I will not drink of this until we're in the kingdom together. This is the one where he takes you to me as his people. This is the cup of praise. It's the fourth cup of the Passover. It's the cup that Yahushua will not drink of until he's with us as his bride. This is the kingdom cup. This is the cup of the kingdom. And this, of course, has been taught in traditional Judaism for over Oh, 3,000 years. So they're actually drinking Yahusha's cup every single year, and it's hidden in their sacks of tradition, just like we saw with the sons of Jacob coming down into Egypt. The cup was hidden in their sacks of tradition, and they're drinking it every single year, the third cup. They're drinking Yahusha's cup, and they do not realize that it's his. But Zechariah tells us that one day they shall come and they shall come a-weeping for the one that they have pierced. When they realize whose cup it is that's been hidden there for all these years. So once you come to the Lamb, the four cups, you gain the security of three eternal truths. Once you come to the Lamb, the four cups, you gain three eternal truths. Number one, Yahuwah becomes yours. He will be your Elohim. Look at verse seven. He will be your Elohim. He knows you intimately and he cares for you intimately. We experience that, don't we? We truly do. Number two, Yahuwah brings you out of your sin. The Elohim who doesn't leave you as you are. Aren't you? I am so glad that he didn't leave me as I was. 
And he won't leave me as I am now because sanctification will not allow that. You're always being transformed more into his glory. And number three, Yahuwah assures you a future, an eternal heritage beyond this world, beyond Egypt, beyond the limits of this world. Why? Because he loves you. No. Because you're good. No. It's got nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with me. Thank goodness. He does it because it's his nature. It's his nature and it's independent of you. It's independent of me. Your goodness, your badness is irrelevant once you've partaken of the Passover cups. You have a responsibility, but that uh, is irrelevant to his nature. It's what he's doing that is true to his nature. He is Yahweh regardless of me, regardless of your nature, regardless of my nature now. That's called eternal security. And you can have doctrinal debates upon it. And if you take one school of thought all the way to its logical human conclusion, it will limit the other school of thought. Help me out, Aaron. That is Armenianism and Calvinism, correct? One school of thought will, will take you to one conclusion, and that logical conclusion then limits the other school of thought. But as Paul says, we see through a, a glass dimly, meaning outside of the ends of the logic, because Yahweh is beyond human logic, there is perfect harmony. But that comes to faith. And sometimes you have to lay down your intellect to be able to grasp it. That doesn't mean that you're, you're stupid. You have to think, but you can't rely solely upon your reasoning because you are a mere mortal and Yahweh is beyond us. So there is something I do want to bring up here because it is important for many people that are coming into the feasts and the festivals. And there's been much confusion over the years and people have written in to me about communion and should we still take communion. And I'll jump into 1 Corinthians 10. You can turn there if you want. And I'll jump into Hebrews chapter 10 and you can turn there if you want. And I'll also read from Second Maccabees chapter 6 if any of you have got your Septuagint with you. Okay? And I'll tell you a funny story while you're turning to those places. My eldest, my firstborn, my Bachor Moshe is uh, 15 now? 15, okay. So he was obviously raised in the Torah faith, hence his name Moshe. And we have taken our children, my wife and I, on a couple of expeditions over the years to church. Only a few times, just so that they could see what the difference is between our faith and uh, the faith that is being syncretized. We've been to a Met, we went to a Mennonite church one time. Um, big mistake there. We went in December. Okay, wasn't thinking because we'd been in the Hebrew Hebrew movement, Torah movement for so long, and you're not really following the Roman pagan calendar. And oh my goodness, first time my children enter a church. It's December time. Well, you can imagine what they thought of that. So we didn't go back. Now, we went to a church more recently, maybe about two or three months ago, and it was kind of 
I was expecting to go and have um, kind of more of a, a Pentecostal, small country church of about, you know, 50 people. And it was like that. But they ended up, and we were the new guests, and, you know, they, they like to see a big family come in and think, oh, right, we've got a new big family, young family coming in. Um, they had communion. They had communion. Now, my wife, of course, being very observant, she's, she nudges me, and she's like, they've got the communion stuff out. I'm like, they do? She's like, yes. Look, it's over there. And I was like, oh, oh. She's like, what are we going to do? I said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are not going to partake of it for sure. So I got up and I walked along to the children. I said, look at that over there. You see those sun disc wafers? You see all those little things? They're going to come and try and get you to have them. Just decline. Of course. So what do they most probably think of us? Bunch of blooming heathen, right? They don't want to even partake of the communion. Why? This is why. Because to him who knows, he is accountable to it. And this is something I have learned, and I just spoke to my wife about it yesterday. And King Solomon says this in the book of Ecclesiastes. With much learning comes what, Aaron? Much sorrow. I tell you what, ignorant bliss. But I can never go back to that ignorant bliss. Because with much learning comes much sorrow. I am held so much more accountable than those that haven't learned. And you start to see this world and you start to see the pain and the suffering and the eternal consequences of the decisions that people are making. I can never go back and do the things that I did in my 20s because I'm, firstly, I'm transformed. I know better. And if I did, I would feel such conviction and such condemnation and that it wouldn't even be fun. It would cause such suffering because with much learning comes much sorrow. It would have been so easy to partake of that, but we couldn't. This is why. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to wise men. He's speaking to people that read. And how do you really become wise? The fear of Yahuwah is the beginning of wisdom. So don't tell me you're a wise man if you're an infidel. Because you're not. Because the Bible calls you a fool. Because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahuwah. So firstly, you have to fear Yahuwah. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the common union of the blood of Moshiach? The bread which we break, is it not the common union of the body of Moshiach? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, those carnal, carnal unbelievers, are they not which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Meaning, if you mess around with Ouija boards, are you going to be partaking of that demonic altar? Is there going to be a cause and... Oh, you better believe it. There's going to be a cause and effect. If you enter into the temple of idols, are you going to be spiritually affected? 
And Paul says, well, idol is nothing, but there are principalities connected to the things that people are doing. And this is where traditional Christianity goes awash. You know, it's Halloween and they're like, oh, you know, that's okay. We'll just do it in the church. No, it's not okay. It's not okay because there are spiritual ramifications from partaking with these occult practices. So I go on. And in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 10, it is written, What say I then, that an idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the thing which the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to El. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You mean there is a spiritual bridge, a kinship, a connection, a spiritual connection to demons when you partake of occult practices, even if you think that they're holy. That's called syncretism. Syncretism. Verse 21. Here we go. You cannot. You utterly can't. You utterly cannot drink the cup of Yahusha and the cup of devils at the same time. You can't do that. You cannot be partakers of the master's table and the cup of devils because you're being double-minded. You're unstable in all your ways. You're lukewarm and you will be very, very spiritually confused. And it will manifest in your life. You'll be called a lukewarm believer. And you will not be on fire in your family home. And your children will not be on fire. I love taking my children to those two churches that we did. Because they left and they were pumped for the faith. My son wanted to go back in there and sort them out. I mean, pumped. And I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. I am seeing the fruits of my labor. And my wife's labor. Mainly my wife's labor. But it's exciting to me. I love my children right now, the age they're at. It is, I love it. Now, my wife is, you know, she's a saddened because she liked them when they were, you know, in little baby blankets and all that stuff. You know, yeah, right now, this is it for me. I mean, I'm, we're right there, aren't we? Because there's a lot of action. There's a lot of action. A lot of fire and zeal and we get to do things and communicate and I can see their personalities coming out. But I'm seeing the fruits of my labor. Do we provoke the master to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We have to partake of the master's cup, not the cup of devils. Well, what's this got to do with communion? What are you going? Oh, we'll get there. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 28 he that despises Moshe's Torah dies. Now, you've got to watch out for your translation here. How many of your translation has changed the tense to died? Oh, well, that was back in the old times. Back in the Old Testament times, they died. No, this is dies. This is ongoing. This is present tense. This is still relevant today. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Does it say died? Or dies. Well, you're in a Hebraic scriptures. Huh? 
You're in the King Jimmy, past tense. Oh, well, that was back then, you see? You see? No, this is present tense. This is ongoing. This is not past tense. He that despises Moshe's Torah dies without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye that he thought be worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the son of El, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. This is talking about syncretism. You've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. You're supposed to come to Passover, but instead... The elements of the Passover, the body of Messiah, the third cup, the blood of Messiah, you've now gone outside of the household of Yahuwah, outside of the feasts and festivals of Yahuwah, and you have now gone to Rome because Rome's become your daddy. And now you're partaking of the feast of devils. What are you talking about? I still don't understand a word you're saying. Be patient. Because now we come to Second Maccabees chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to talk about the god Dionysus. The altar was laden with unclean victims prohibited by the Torah. It was no longer allowed to celebrate the Sabbath, sounds familiar, or to observe the customs of our ancestors, or even to declare oneself a Jew. But on the contrary, they were led by bitter necessity to celebrate the king's birthday with a monthly sacrifice. And when the feast of Dionysus came, they were also forced to follow the Dionysus procession, and wear floral wreaths of ivy. You know, at this time of year, people put those wreaths on their door. This is where it comes from. Dionysus was the god of the grape harvest. Dionysus was the winemaking god, the son of Zeus. To the Romans, Dionysus was Bacchus, Dionysus was Bacchus. They worshipped Dionysus or Bacchus on his day, which was the first day of the week when the sun rose. It was Sunday. And at sunrise, they would go down to the Tiber River in Rome, just outside of Rome. And as the sun rose, they would take the children and they would sacrifice the children and they would drain the blood of the children and they would drink of the blood of the children after they took a sun disc wafer and they would partake of the sun disc wafer and they would partake of the blood of the children and they would worship Bacchus down by the Tiber River outside of Rome. This is your Sunday communion cup that then got imported into the church at the Council of Nicaea. And people have been partaking of the cup of demons for over 2,000 years, thinking that it's got something to do 
with the crucified and resurrected Lord. It's got everything to do with mystery paganism. Bacchus and Dionysus. But you can see how they were anti-Semitic. They hated anything to do with the Jews. And the Passover, they were like, well, that's a, a Jewish feast. We don't want the third cup of the Passover. In fact, we don't want to do Passover. Let's change it into the name of a bare-breasted fertility goddess called Ishtar. But everybody's going to want this cup. So how can we come up with the cup? Oh, well, there's another religious cult down just outside of Rome here, down by the, the Tiber River. They take um, a cup of, of blood and a sun disc wafer on the first day of the week at sunrise on Sunday. Um, let, let's, let's, let's bring that into the faith. And if we combine that with Easter, boom, and we put this through a council and we run this through, I think everybody will be doing it. And we're going to be able to bring in, a, we're going to bring in the, the Dionysus cult, the Bacchus cult. We're going to bring in the Ishtar cult. We're going to bring in all these cults and we're going to have them under universal control. Catholic, meaning universal control. And that's what happened. And so for thousands of years, people have been partaking of the cup of demons and thinking that they're partaking of the master's cup. With much learning comes much sorrow. So we could never go back. So when we're in the church and we saw that, we're like, oh, no. It would have been much easier to go along, to get along. Because everybody looked at us like, oh, my goodness, these are heathen. They won't take it, you know? But we had our reasons, and our reasons were these reasons. Which, of course, is spoke about in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. Not to beleaguer the point, but this is very important. Because I don't want you to be into syncretism anymore. So now that you know this, you're going to have to make your own decisions too. And even oftentimes in the messianic groups, they'd still be doing this on Shabbat. With a little cup of wine. And I'd be like, what? I thought we, what? No, now we're not doing it on Sunday, we're doing it on Shabbat. It's amazing. And then I try and share this with some of the messianic, oh, no, 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 no. We like our traditions. 1 Corinthians 11.25 And after the same manner he also took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. How often is Passover? Every Sunday at sunrise? So you should drink of his cup as often as you do. Think about it. How often is Passover? Once a year. How often do you do the common union cup, the third cup of Passover? Once a year. You do not do it weekly because that's a different God. That's a devil's. It's right here within the text. Look, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. How often would you do the Passover, which is where this cup originates from, once a year? Which cup is mine? The third cup, and how often would you do that? Once a year. It's all right there within the text. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the master's death till he comes. So once we start to get our brains aligned with the actual Torah, you can start to see it, can't you? 
Wherefore, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Master. That's serious. What are you saying? What I'm saying is that back at Calvary Chapel, there are many emotional and intimate experiences I had with the lights down low, with the slow acoustics, strum of the guitar, catering to the emotions and the candles lit, and out came the sun disc wafer and the little cup, and I did not know. I didn't have the wisdom to know. And you know what? Yahweh's mo- I've seen people get saved at Easter services. But would I ever go back to one now that I know? And could I ever go back to that? Yahweh's mercy and grace is he'll work even in the trenches and the mire and the clay. But once you have come to that knowledge, you are now subject to that understanding. You have to change. So it's not about saying all of those. I'm sure there's many, many people that have come to faith at those. That's Yahweh's mercy and grace. It's not an excuse for us to practice it once we know. So I'm not judging here except myself. Verse 28, but let a man judge himself, examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. So if I had partook with that cup in the church a few months ago, then I believe that I would have been guilty. And I believe that I would have eateth and drunk unworthily, and I would have felt convicted and condemned by my own lack of courage and lack of faith of standing on my convictions. But I didn't. And we all left, and none of us partook of it, and it was a great teaching lesson for my children. And it has strengthened their faith and made their faith real, more real. Because I don't want my children's faith to be just the faith of their mother and father. I want it to be their faith. And how do we do that? By giving them the tools of making it an exciting faith. Let's go out on and do, um, what do they used to call that when you're at school, when you go out for an adventure? Field a field trip. Thank you. We do field trips. We do field trips as a family. I took my son on a field trip one time when he was a young boy and people was being slain in the spirit and he's like, right, you remember that? We've done some funny field trips over the years. All good teaching experiences. It's either all or nothing. You either get into Shabbat or get out of Shabbat. Either get into the feast or get out of the feast. Either get into the Torah or get out of the Torah. Stop dilly-dallying around. You can't dabble around in dogma all the while not being totally in the Word. You can't not implement His Word. It has to be an everyday home lifestyle. The problem I experienced when I was a boy growing up in England with the Church of England, that I saw families all around, including my family, that assented to 
biblical ideas. I mean, I went to Sunday school. I went to a Church of England school. I, I had um, one of my classes was Bible study every single week. But I didn't observe it in my home. It wasn't spoken about in my home. It wasn't lived in my home. There was no special, close, intimate, and practical, everyday living of anything biblical. Meaning, if you don't create a biblical culture in your home, then what's going to be ever-present in your home? Egypt. The world will be ever-present by default. You have to actively drive out Egypt from your home, and that is by observance. It's not mental assent. It's not mental aptitude. It is a practical implementation of the word. If there's no biblical lifestyle culture of the home, then the result will be tepid, unenthusiastic children. Why? Because they don't see it modeled from the father to the mother in a daily, exciting way. You need to keep them engaged, and they need to be jazzed about the faith. If they're not pumped and jazzed, and you can't show them some of the things that we've shown our children to be able to say, well, look, this is why we do the things we do. Let's go and do a field trip. Okay? We're not going to do it at Christmas time again. Okay? I don't need to subject my children to that, you know. But, uh, hey, now they know. <laughs> Eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's not telling you to go down to the river Tiber. He's saying, come to the Passover. Look at verse 9. That was a long segue, wasn't it? But I think it's important. Maybe it's changed one person's life and what decisions you'll make next time you see that little crumb and wafer. Oh, I hope so. And Moshe spoke this to the children of Israel. But they listened not to Moshe because of their anguish of ruach and cruel bondage. The Hebrew word here is croissant. Not a croissant. I wouldn't mind a croissant right now. But croissant. Stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. They didn't hear and obey Moshe because they were impatient of ruach and stiff neck in their service. Verse 10. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe say, saying, Bo, go, go in, speak to Pharaoh of Egypt so that he lets the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moshe spoke before Yahweh saying, See, the children of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? I, whom am of uncircumcised lips. Now, if you want the whole backstory on Moshe and his speech impediment, then you need to go and read, and I don't have time today, the book of Yasha, the 70th chapter. And I won't spoil it for you, but go and read the 70th chapter of Yasha, and you will find the whole backstory on why Moshe had a speech impediment. Now we're going to go to chapter 7, verse 8. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moshe and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did as Yahweh had commanded. 
And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And here is the tale of the rod. This is the serpent rod that Yahweh asked Moshe to cast down in Exodus chapter 4, verse 3. And it was a nachash in the Hebrew, spelt a nun chet shin, which means to foretell, to conjure a snake, but it also can mean metal, smooth, bronze, or copper, as in judgment. The Hebrew word nachash, nachash. Now, here in the text, it's called a tanaim, tanaim. But if you go to Numbers chapter 21, verse 8, you'll find something very interesting. And Yahweh said to Moshe, make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And if it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, he shall live. And of course, we find this mentioned in the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah, if you look, you shall live. You're bitten by sin is the allegory and metaphor. You're bitten by sin, and the only way you're going to be delivered from sin is by looking and living, and that takes faith, because otherwise they would have just scurried away into the tents to die. But it took faith for them to come out, realize they were bitten by sin and vipers by Satan, and they look and live. That's the allegory and the metaphor. But serpent is in italics when we get to that part of the text in Numbers. It's actually not the Hebrew word nachash in Numbers chapter, what did I say it was? Numbers 21.8. You've got the King Jimmy. So is yours in italics? Or most probably you'd need maybe a modern version, a new King James or new American standard. It might be italicized. Because Nahash is not in the text. It's actually a different Hebrew word, seraph. Kind of sounds like seraphim, doesn't it? Do you have anything? Okay, you look amongst yourself. But actually in the text is not Nahash, but seraph, like seraphim, spelt shin resh which is seraphim. Where do we find seraphim? Seraphim. Isaiah 6, 2. And above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. I'm just asking a question. Don't, don't, don't hate the messenger. It's just a question. Could it be, I'm just thinking, could it be that Moshe's staff actually turned into Yahweh's fiery attendant? Think about that would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Moshe throws down his staff, and it turns into a seraphim. Yahweh's fiery attendant to protect his altar. And Yahweh's fiery attendant goes out from the altar and devours up the pagan representatives 
of their altar system. Destroying syncretism and all those little devils. I believe so. That's just my understanding of the text. Because that seraphim is bronze. It's judging. So really, it's Yahweh's altar judging the altars of the world. And do not think that all this nonsense that they're doing in this world currently isn't because it's to their altars. This is all spiritual. And they are worshipping their devils. I believe Yahweh's fiery attendant is judging the Egyptians' various bronze gods that they served. And we know later in the book of Numbers right here that Moshe makes this, I believe, a seraphim of bronze. It's because he was reconstructing what he did right here in Exodus. Powerful. Look at verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he listened not to them. And Yahuwah had said, and Yahuwah said to Moshe, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So the hard heart of man is epitomized in Pharaoh. And in chapter 7, verse 3, we find this Hebrew word, Croissant, not croissant, croissant. And in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, we find another Hebrew word, kabad, for hardened. There's croissant, chapter 7, verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 1, there's another Hebrew word, kabad. And then there's another eight cases in the Hebrew where we find the Hebrew word for hardened is chazak. Chazak. What does chazak mean? It's at the end of the book of Joshua, Yehoshua. Strengthened, be strong, be strong. Chazak, chazak. Be strong, be strong. So what's actually happened with in, in Pharaoh's heart? And whatever happens with your heart and my heart, it's really that simple, down to the Yetzirah Tov, the evil inclination of man. No, excuse me, the Yetzirah Tov, the good inclination of man, or the Yetzirah the evil inclination of man. Will we strengthen? The natural man's inclination is the Yetzirah and unless he comes to the Passover Seder and partakes of the third cup, over his life, the journey of his life, that Yetzirah will be strengthened. And he will become more and more and more an enmity against the Creator. But once we come to the Passover Seder and we've been transformed, we have a Brit Milah Ha Lev, a circumcision of heart, then there's a transformation from the Yetzirah into the Yetzirah Tov, a good inclination that through sanctification should be strengthened over our life. So what is the teaching? Yahuwah merely strengthens whatever is in your heart. 
Yahuwah merely strengthened what was already present within Pharaoh's heart. Yahuwah strengthened his inclination. And it was an evil inclination. And Yahuwah strengthened it to show Pharaoh the condition of his heart. And this is, I got to sit down for this one. Because I've been pondering this for many years. And I ponder this oftentimes because of me. And I hope that you ponder it too because of you. Can we switch to the camera in the corner as I sit down? Are we on that one? Oh, we're just not doing the light flipping. That's all right, son. You've got a lot going on today. So if you've got a cup of tea or coffee, just let's ponder this. Because it really is a very philosophical and spiritual concept. The case of the heart of man. And I know we can just like wipe it off and go, oh, but in my heart, you know, we've all said that before, but in my heart. But it really is about the heart. But that doesn't excuse us to not keep the commandments. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, yes. But think about this. Every time you and I make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the soul, the nephesh, the part of you that chooses, that's the soul, into something a little different than what it was before. Every decision. You are turning the most central part of you, the nephesh, into something a little different than what it was before. And taking take your whole life as a whole, think about this, amateurize it out over the whole of your life with all your innumerable choices. All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing, the nephesh, the soul, either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature either into a cre think about this either into a either into a creature that is in harmony with yahuwah and with other creatures and with oneself or else into one that is in a state of avarice and war and hatred with Yahuwah and its fellow creation and with itself. Now, amateurize that out over the whole life cycle of man. To be the one kind of creature is heavenly. You're going to experience more joy. You're going to experience more peace, knowledge, health and power to be the other it means madness horror idiocy rage impotence and eternal loneliness each of us at each moment brethren is either progressing to one end or the other one state or the other the heart of man. I think you can see how the world is progressing today, can't you? See, Yahweh doesn't send men to hell. Men choose to war against Yahweh, war against creation, 
and war against themselves. Like kind after like kind and war against one's very self, the result, of course, is death. It's a self-imposed hell of rejecting their maker who loved them by giving them life. And this is the complexity of this world. In Romans 8 verse 6 it is written, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because you're transforming the nefesh by every decision you make into either a heavenly creature, life and peace, or a hellish creature, enmity against Yahweh and death. Because the carnal mind is enmity against Yahweh, for it cannot be subject to the Torah of Yahweh, neither indeed can it be. People are failing to realize that the mark which the action leaves on the tiny center of self, the nefesh. Nobody may see it, but you see it. And you will have to endure with how it sullied up your soul. Love, joy, hope, peace, shame, condemnation, anger, fear, avarice, judgment, hatred, covetous. You can see it, can't you? We do things to ourselves. You don't do it to me. I don't do it to you. We do things to ourselves that unless we repent will make it harder to keep out the next time. It'll just walk into our lives and it will become even more dire. Only by turning to Yahuwah can we have the twist, that twisted part of the central man straightened out. Because your soul is naturally twisted since the fall. And unless you come to know the Savior, the Savior is the only way of untwisting the central coil helix, your nefesh, and straightening it out. Because naturally, your natural man, no matter what you do, you can be a Buddhist, you can be this, you can be hyper-spiritual, but you have a twisted coil within you, in, your, in the nefesh. And it can only be straightened out by the Savior. But if we don't turn to Yahuwah, we are doomed in the long run. Doomed if we do not allow the Savior to straighten out the twisted coil. The litmus test to see where you are is this. If a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. And this is where I am at at this point in my life, I must say, this is where I am reflecting deeply at this point in my life. And you can talk to my wife, and I think she, I know she will tell you that she sees it. Because we're experiencing a change in our marriage, in our family. And it's because of this. Because I know that I'm getting better. Because I see 
more evil in me. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less and less. He thinks he's pretty good. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is pretty good, doing all right. This is common sense, really, when you think about it. You can only understand the nature of a thing when you are not under the influence of a thing. You can only understand drunkenness when you're not under its influence and you're sober. You can only understand that you made a mistake in your math when you are now reflecting back and you have the wisdom to see. You can only understand the nature of the thing when you are not under the influence of the thing. You can only see those math mistakes when your mind is working properly, not when you're actually making the mistakes in your test. You see, awakened hearts know about good and evil. Hardened hearts do not know about either. And I see this in my secular life, in my profession, because of this culture that has grown up with no faith. In Joshua 4, 24, verse 23, it is written, now therefore put away the strange Elohim that are among you and incline your heart to Yahuwah, the Elohim of Israel. It's time to put away those, those syncretized methods and pagan practices. It's time to come out of her, my people. Because in verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning. See, he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, Nachash, shall you take in your hand. And you shall say to him, Yahweh Elohim of the Hebrews has sent to me saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And see, before you wouldn't listen. Now we come into the plagues. And in the beginning of the Bible, we saw how Abel's blood cried out to convict Cain. But here in our text, the blood of the male children cries out from the Nile in a hope to convict Pharaoh. But there is no conviction. And then the plague of frogs testifies against Pharaoh's demand for the midwives to murder those innocent children. Because the frog was associated associated with the Hebrew god Chek, which was the frog-faced goddess who, according to the ancients, was the goddess of the midwives. You see, there's anthropomorphic Yahuwah everywhere because he begins the plagues with just a touch of his finger in chapter 8, verse 19. And then in chapter 9, verse 3, there's more of an expression of the deity. Now this is anthropomorphic Yahuwah with the hand. And finally the deliverance is accomplished with not a finger, not a hand, but it's the outstretched arm in chapter 6, verse 6. Do you see the progression of anthropomorphic Yahuwah? And you know I love that word. 
Yahweh is what? He is manifesting his majesty over the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. It's all about what's plaguing you, what's plaguing me. Because the ten plagues typify the ten plagues that are plaguing the tribes of Israel scattered abroad. It's kind of interesting today to be reading about the plagues because would you say that we have a plague of our day? We live in a day of a plague? It would seem that way to me. There have been many plagues, of course, in history, many plagues indeed. But mankind has never reacted with such fear and fatalistic faithfulness or faithlessness, I should say, as it has today. I mean, there was the great plague in England. There was the great fire. I mean, there were so many plagues, the bubonic plague. I mean, there's been plagues upon plagues upon plagues throughout humanity. But what keeps me up at night right now is not the spread of a plague. It's not bacteria, it's not viruses, it's not germs. It's the widespread calamity and evil that keeps me up at night. You see, we're living the plague of our lifetime, and it is not a virus, my friends. Negar in the Hebrew, a plague. Negar. It's a verb too, and it's associated with leprosy and sin. And it goes back to what I was saying, the heart of man. It means to cause worry and distress. The world is plagued by so much today that the souls of men are overwhelmed as everyday life unravels all around us. All around us. And it's hard for so many people to have hope right now. But it's in human suffering through the ages and around the world that the faithful remnant rise. It's through that human suffering. Now, just as in the days, and I'm finishing up here. Thank you. You've been patient. I'm trying to relearn how to compact all these chapters in a Torah portion. It's, it's been a few years for me. And if you look back at my earlier teachings, I would bang on for hours. And you're, no, you're doing it right now. Well, I'm learning. I'm going to try and shorten them and, and uh, abridge them. But uh, it's, it's a lot to get through. But as I was saying, just as in the days of this week's Torah, Parsha, where there was a power struggle. Think about it. We'll conclude with this. There was a power struggle between Moshe and an unstable unpredictable, threatened ruler, Pharaoh. We see the plague was highlighted, and today the plague is highlighted. And what does it show you? The same thing, that there is a power struggle between an enslaved populace and an unstable, unpredictable, threatened ruler. It's called global Hegemony. We have S.A. Tan using an inverted procedure from this scripture text in our world today. What do I mean? He's inverting the Bible, S.A. Tan, just like he did in Matthew 4, for his own agenda. He took the scriptures and he inverted them 
to try and enslave Yahushua to his agenda. And he would have set him up as king under his rule. And this is what's happening today. Yahuwah had a plan to deliver enslaved people from their slavery and set them free. But now, Satan is taking that very plan. He's inverting it and taking free people and enslaving them through a plague. And I'll show you how. It is really a power struggle with an enslaved populace and an unstable, unpredictable global system. And you're seeing it teetering financially right on the and they are threatened, absolutely threatened. We have Satan inverting the Bible here for his own agenda. Yahweh designed the plague to break down Pharaoh. Did he not? But every time Pharaoh's heart was hardened or strengthened, and he denies Moshe's request. As we approach... Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells us there will be a greater final exodus. As we approach the final exodus, we are seeing the world's leaders are using a plague to break down not the leader, as in the case of our text, but the people. And instead of freeing the people from slavery, as in our text, they're using a plague to lead people into servitude and slavery benefits and privilege program water turned to blood frogs lice flies livestock pestilent boils hail locusts darkness and then what the killing of the firstborn children and the tenth plague is the killer literally some wonder if each booster is an additional plague, right? Or it sure, I'm not, I'm, it sure make, it makes you wonder. How many plagues are they going to get? What are we at? Plague four right now? And if you've had three, then it's as if you haven't had the plague. All of this leads to the angel of death, brethren. All of this leads to the angel of death sweeping through the night, killing the firstborn of the powerful, it seemed, worldly system of Egyptians. But the Hebrews are spared because they are awakened. They are awakened. The doorposts are marked by the blood of the Lamb. It's all about blood. It's all about blood. This is a blood sacrifice to demons. Humanity 2.0. Blood, absolutely DNA transformed and changed into different creatures. It's shocking and sad that such death and suffering is needed to bring about liberation. Think about it. So shocking. Yahweh liberated the people. But today... I believe we must deal with the fact that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart because you and I are witnessing the hardening taking place within the hearts of men as the world is wearying from the heavy mental health crisis of the past two years as we now enter into the third year of the plague. 
the devastating effects of mental health that has now afflicted and hardened the heart of man. People are more violent, more impatient, more judgmental, more hateful, more hopeless. You see it everywhere. It's a manifestation of faithlessness because they have chosen fear. But not the fear of Yahuwah, the fear of man. And Yahuwah, back in the text, he liberated the people. Yes, with signs and wonders. But it was at the expense of others, wasn't it? And that's why at Passover Seders, as the ten plagues plagues are being read, each person drops just a little bit of wine on the plate ten times because you're diminishing the joy of your glass by each plague, realizing that your liberation, though it is sweet and you're joyful, it's bitter because it cost the lives of many who were slumbering and a part of Egypt that died. Liberation cost at the lives of the slumberers. And I experience that today. And I think many of you do. When you see friends and family making health decisions that are changing them, that are changing their blood, my joy and liberation of being an awakened mortal is tempered at the expense of the suffering and death of others. And we haven't even got started, brethren. Over the next few years, we could have hoped for not only the liberation of Israel, but we could have hoped for the spiritual liberation of Pharaoh, could we not? From his delusions of total power. Yet in Romans 9, verse 17, Paul tells us that it was never to be so. And you can pray for your leaders. And you can pray for their liberation from delusional power. But likewise, is it possible that maybe it was never to be so? Because Yahuwah is strengthening that Yetzirah, that evil inclination that is so present. Everybody has made choices to where they are. As for me and my house, I want to strengthen my Yetzirah Tov, my good inclination. And by me doing so, I recognize evil within me, more so now than in a long time. Pharaoh, like today's empires, are prone to illusions of omnipotence. And it takes a lot of... <sighs> affliction to try and shake out that pride and that complacency especially on a global scale today but history teaches us that empires rise empires fall and I believe you and I are living through the fall of empires and you have been chosen to be a generation that's going to experience that it's cataclysmic a generation that's going to see a fall of empires the plagues of Yahuwah were designed to bring Pharaoh to his knees. 
that he might realize we would hope the limits of his power and let our people go. Conversely, and I'll finish with this, the plague of our time was designed to bring the people, us, to our knees. And it actually brought the tyrants to the realization that their power was without limits as long and so long as they can keep the plague going. So will they keep it going? Of course they will keep it going. Because by keeping it going, the federal dollars, the UN dollars, the global dollars, wars are always used when a government is in such terrible debt that it has to obfuscate the calamity of their financial status. So therefore, there was World War I, World War II, and now we have a war on COVID, and of course, we have got a climate war. And with that, there is going to be an absolute mayhem, because that is what they have always done. It is war. It is all about war. We were in Afghanistan. We were in, uh, allegedly in Iraq for weapons of mass destruction. No. We were there so we could wash the money. So you could take all of the Federal Reserve notes out of the jurisdiction. You could wash it through all of that warmongering and then bring it back in. It's always been about the money. And that is the problem that most people don't see. So there you have it. It's a plague for our times. And the only hope is still the same as then. Luke chapter 21. For when these things begin to pass, my brothers and sisters, and they begin to come to pass, then we look up and we lift up our heads for that cup of redemption, that third cup, that cup of redemption draweth nigh. But the real plague has always been the same. The heart of man. Remember, your whole life long, you are slowly turning this central thing, your nephesh, either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with Yahweh and other creatures and with oneself, or else into one that is in a state of war and avarice and hatred with Yahuwah and with its fellow creation and with itself. You judge the worlds by its fruits, and where do you think they are? Things to ponder. Feeling a little philosophical today. Let's see what you have to say in the chat. Lighten it up a little bit. A lot to cover in the Torah portion. A lot to cover in the Torah portion. And thank you for sticking with us and being patient. If you want me to grab your, uh, you want to grab my attention, then please redline me at Torah to the Tribes in the chat here. And I will see if I can get a hold of you. And let me see, get it on the live chat. Get my spectacles out here. All right. 
Brian Jones, I hope I explain the difference between the Nachash and the Tanaim. I hope I did. Kevin Nita, I've really enjoyed watching the past Torah portion editions that are available. How prophetic, prophetic those teachings were. It's actually pretty interesting. People contact me over the, over the time. Are we on the corner camera, Moshe? Yes, we are. Over the time and just say, oh my goodness, I read, um, listened to the sixth edition and the fifth edition and you said this and it came to, I'm like, really? It's just amazing just how time and, and many things come to pass. Why? Because Yahweh's scripture is alive, is alive and powerful. And you really do get to see that. And it's pretty powerful indeed, indeed. All right. If you want me, Cameron, down there in California. Shalom, brother Matthew. We enjoy your teachings as this is our first time to go over the portions we understand you are trying to condense the options. How about a triennial way? A triennial, the triennial cycle. Well, I'm already got started on the annual, but the triennial, that would, three years, that would be a long run, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's a good, you know, we'll keep that one in mind. That's not a bad idea at all. Truth like Velcro, Lynn Litzinger. Okay, so that is who you are behind the profile. Matthew, you are spot on. Thank you. The blood is the life of the person. And if they change the DNA of the blood, they can literally change from the image of Elohim to the image of the beast. It is. It is. Exactly. Give us some thumbs up right now. Thank you very much, RJK. Give us some thumbs up. And please subscribe to the ministry channel. Let's get the subscription numbers up. They have not uh, jumped the way I would have liked. So please, it really does, really does help broadcast to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And we're going to be having Passover announcements coming up here shortly. We have secured a location here in Oregon. Um, those of you that came for the Feast of Tabernacles last year, we're going to be in the same camp. We're really excited about that. There's, um, it, was, it was fabulous, the best camp we've been to, very private, right down by the river, just out here in the Santiam wilderness. So please, that will be, you, you can look at the Torah calendar, up on the website and Libby thank you so much for sending me the tour to the tribes calendar um, I don't know if that's something that you would be into maybe making and um, and selling to to people because I'm sure it was there was quite an expense uh, involved in that but it really was beautiful she, she took the Torah calendar and put it in a, uh, a, a, a ringed binder and uh, Oh, yeah, a spiral, spiral booklet, I should say. And you can put it in your kitchen. It looks great. It's got the Torah portions along with it. Um, anyway, thank you. Very much appreciate that. But uh, get, me, get, get back to me on that if you've got an angle with a printer and there's a cost and, you know, maybe, maybe that, um, that would be something you'd be up to. But, again, it could be a lot of work. So much more truth, much more truth. So you change back to much more truth. I preferred much more truth than Beacon Hill Ministries, okay? So I'm glad you're back. This is a silent genocide of the human race and a psychological attack. This is much more truth. I definitely know this is an authentic user right here um, because uh, this is how he communicates, which uh, 
I love. This is a silent. <laughs> See, you've got to love the salt. Anyway, much more truth. Good to have you back here. Shiloh, talking about salt. Shiloh, global. Again, you see, like kind after like kind. Global syncretism and mental ascent is, and again, we again, a lot of salt. I love the salt. Emissary Elohim, thrice there too. Right up with you guys. Of course, Emissary of Elohim is, is um, putting the Hebrew um, and the proper linguistics in the text and will keep us on the straight and narrow with our translations. I much appreciate having somebody um, listening in who is doing that. Thank you very much. Oh, I screen jumped. Give me a second. Give me a se Good word. Toda Rabah. See, Burtz. Thank you. Chris, Chris Forstner, where is the scriptural reference to a Passover Seder? Seder just means order. It's an order. So the order is where I just read to you in the book of Exodus. The order is taken out of the order of the cups. And the third cup was that cup in that order. So that's all Seder means. Now, has it been turned into a tradition with a lot of Jewish traditions? Yes. But it comes from the text that we see today and the ordering of that. That's where they took that from. So I hope that makes sense for you. But yes, is there a lot of traditions that are unbiblical or not unbiblical, but not in the Bible that have now been brought into the order or Seder? Yes. That's where it comes from, and that's where your four cups come from, right there. Hope that answers your question. Good question, though. Got to you. Got to make sure we're not teaching traditions of men. What did you mean by the third cup of the Passover? Well, if you sit down at a Passover seder, traditionally there'd be four cups, and the third cup is, of course, Yahusha's cup. And when Yahusha was with his disciples, he was doing that order because that order or seder had been in effect for many, many years. All right. Oh, we are going to be starting, I hope, a, um, I may be jumping the gun on this, making this announcement, but I think I'm okay to make announcement. I think we are starting a African um, Torah to the Tribes group, an English Torah to the Tribes group, and was the other one in India? I forget. Three international groups, because we've got a lot of people in those countries, so that's pretty cool, isn't it? So anyway, I think I think I didn't. Hopefully, I didn't jump the gun on making that announcement because we've got to find the peeps to head it. We've got to find the tribal, the tribal descendants out there in the lands, or was it Australia? I can't remember. We'll get that up to you. We have got Torah to the Tribes community every single day of the week. Go to torahtothetribes.com forward slash connect and participate and make friends and make global connect global make connections worldwide because some of you are not up with the globe you know we don't want to get into that you know but i'm not up for the globe myself the global conspiracies 
whatsoever. So let's just say the worldwide. So we don't get into it. And Doug in the back is giving me a nod. Would you give me a thumbs up, please, Doug? Thank you. Double, double thumbs up. Double thumbs up. And, of course, we have um, our beloved and recently departed Rob Skiba to thank for helping many people even ponder the question. So, Joe Rogan's back, or Ro Jogan. You changed your name. I agree. We need to make sure our choices are with his commandments. I rot from the inside out when I rebel against the Father. Thank you for your sincere honesty. Oh, okay. Thank you, Torah to the Tribes Fellowship. We are going to be in New Zealand, and goodness gracious me, do our brothers and sisters down in New Zealand need to have some fellowship? My goodness, tyranny abounds, does it not? Not only in New Zealand, there is tyranny in the United Kingdom, and I'm sure in South Africa too. But we are glad to have a New Zealand Torah to the Tribes, a United Kingdom Torah to the Tribes, and a South Africa Torah to the Tribes. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to travel again internationally, but if I do, at least I know that I would love to connect with the UK people, but I've always wanted to go to the other two countries as well. Anyway, Australian. Can we have an Australian group? Well, Annette Watson, if you are up for the task, um, we'll, oh, well now, we, now we've gotten people from all over. We need a Puerto Rico. Puerto, Puerto. Puerto, 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 Puerto Rico. Megan, I am not a globalist. <laughs> Rest in peace, Rob Skiba, and um, prayers to his family and to many of the brethren that were, of course, part of that ministry and um, I'm sure feel that loss very deeply, very deeply. Oh. We do have, we must give much thanks to those that have gone ahead of us and have laid such a strong foundation of work. That is true. Shalom Yahuwah. I told my mum about the dream, and then a few nights later, you called my mother on the phone to pray with her. It was really appreciated. Hopefully, one day our families can meet. I did? Oh, I love that. Praise Yahuwah. Thank you, Shalom Yahuwah. Much more truth. You're really enjoying the Restoration True Name Edition Volume 3. Oh, yeah. The Shem Tov is, um, the Shem Tov, Much More Truth, is asking, what is the Shem Tov that it references? The Shem Tov was a Hebrew translation of the book of Matthew that was used, the Jews, a rabbi translated it in Spain at the time of the Inquisitions. Because, of course, they would do the Spanish Inquisitions and they would bring the Jews up um, and basically they would debate them about Yahushua, Jesus, right? Spanish Inquisitions. So they needed to understand the text. So they translated the book of uh, Matthew in the Hebrew, and it's called the Shem Tov Hebrew. And it's a, um, a really great uh, translation of the book of Matthew. So I have it at home. I recommend it to you as well. And I believe you can get it online with a PDF download. 
So, yeah, look that up. Shem Tov Matthew. I think you'll thoroughly enjoy reading it. Yes, I recommend that highly. All right, I think we're coming to the end of the chat, my brethren. Thank you for staying with me, being patient. We had technical problems. You're still here. Please, everybody, if you're still here, just hit the thumbs up button. It doesn't take you but a moment. And a subscribe button too. And remember, put your comments underneath afterwards and edify one another. Don't put your personal emails and telephone numbers up because um, you'll get absolutely spammed. But if you do want to connect with others, then go to the Shabbat um, Fellowship site at TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect, or just go right to TorahToTheTribes.com and um, become part of um, Torah to the Tribes. You'll get a um, free download, and you will be able to connect with people that way as well. So visit our website, and um, please... I mean, my hope in all of this is truly to build a huge, huge community of the 12 tribes scattered abroad coming in together. And we are seeing it, and I am super excited because we are going to be together. I don't know what the next seasons and the next years look like, but I have, I have great hope and expectation of us dwelling together in harmony and peace in love and equity as we learn the scriptures together and we use the many, many skills that we have. We are at the ground site here of building on a strong foundation. And I believe that we have the people, we have the resources and the ability now to be able to grow this ministry of you, the people. It's the 12 tribes scattered abroad because there is no more time than we need the connections. But the first step is, of course, you guys connecting with one another in love and in harmony through the connect groups. And then, if you can, please make that attempt to the three pilgrimage feasts. It is a commandment for the men to go to those pilgrimage feasts but of course, we know that there are travel restrictions and we would not want you to acquiesce to evil. So you may have to use your own transportation to get there because everything is a choice. Just choose not to go commercial and go private and then you're good to go. It's all every, they can only affect the commercial world. If you live in the private world, there is limited, limited things that can happen if you stay on your square and there you have it that's saying shabbat shalom to you from me from the people the phones are ringing yes they are teresa smith we've got alarm bells we've got train tracks but we still stay focused baruka shem yahuwah one more question from yeshiyahu israel he is on fire, and I love that with the menorah. Are you familiar with the Besorah of Yahusha Bible that costs five hundies? No, I am not. Is it good, Yeshayahu? Is it good? I'm not. I'm not. It better have some blooming gold leaf if it's 
costing that much. That's, I know that the lady last week that um, visited us, we had a lovely family that came down from Washington last week, and um, they had a really nice seventh edition restoration, true name edition, leather bound with gold leaf on Bible paper. And that was a major upgrade from the old card stock that we had back in the day. So there you have it. Rattling on, rattling on. That's enough from me. Guard the walls and the gates of your temple, your body in him. That's from the Libby Tube. And remember, you can connect with the Libby Tube at TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect because Libby is doing a one new man teaching. And I know that that just got started. That's a great place to get some really good learning and some really good fellowship. So be blessed, stay strong, and let us continue studying the word together. But be in prayer and be in meditation. And remember, it's all about that sanctification process. Yahweh bless you and